Brooke has clarity. You can hear it in her voice and see it in her work. She knows why she's making, and that why pervades everything. The why is her legacy, her message, her brand. Brooke's why is to inspire creativity in others. It's bigger than her art. It's bigger than her audience. It's her North Star. When you have that kind of clarity, you don't worry about changing creative direction or trying out a new medium. You don't concern yourself with those who rail against your making or criticize your style. When you have that kind of clarity, which only comes from within, you always know how to come back to what matters and how to move forward with what's most important. Brooke is a photographer whose work has been shown in galleries around the world, featured in and on the cover of dozens of magazines and books. She's the winner of the International Photographer of the Year in 2016. She was named Best of Photography in 2015, one of Shutter Magazine's 10 Most Influential Photographers, and is the founder of Lightspace, a photography school for survivors of human trafficking in India and Thailand. Hi, I'm Daphne Cohn, founder of the Creativity Circles Collective, where women artists and makers come together in community to get what they want so that they make what they need. Through intimate gatherings, circles, teaching seminars, roundtable discussions, and co-creating sessions, a place to form deep connections, friendship, and get all the support, love, inspiration, and courage you need to go out in the world and make the thing that you want to make. And you're listening to the Creativity Habit Podcast. Today's guest is photographer Brooke Shaden. In this conversation, some of the things we talk about are three steps to finding your why, your legacy, and your message. The number one thing that stops people from moving forward in their personal and professional life. Becoming a trailblazer and finding true liberation. And how to never run out of ideas or inspiration. May it inspire you to make your thing and change your world. Hello, Brooke, and welcome to the Creativity Habit Podcast. Hi, thank you so much. You're so welcome. I begin each interview with the same question, and then I tailor it a little bit. So for you, it's how did creativity show up for you as a little girl? And in particular, this fascination with other worlds, like other ways, it's both other worlds and ways of being in the world that are different than how we usually show up. I love starting there because my childhood in terms of creativity was really confusing for me in a lot of ways. And I've tried to bring all of that confusion into my art because I think that too often we, we aren't confused enough with the art that we're creating. (laughs) And I mean, like if you're not exploring curiosity and sort of like unsure about where you're going next, then why create at all? And that's kind of how my childhood was with creativity because when I was little, I thought that I wasn't creative. Like I, I was not the person who was like, who excelled in art classes or was really out there weird or just other in any way. I was just totally normal and, um, and very aware of how normal I was. So I grew up with a sister who was super creative and like by the time she was 12 was doing nude art drawing classes and just like very sort of like hippie artist. And, and I was so not that, that I was convinced that like my role in life was to be the normal person. And so I wanted to pursue normal things and just, 
um, and sort of embody that role that I thought that I was supposed to be. So I sort of started out my whole sort of childhood and adolescence with this idea that I should be a teacher and that I should sort of like do whatever responsible people do in their lives. And that always conflicted in a lot of ways with how I understood the world, which is in a way that was much more fantasy driven, where I could look at anything in the world, whether it be a forest or a tree or, or a pine cone or like any specific little thing and see it for not what it was, but what it could be in my imagination. And so I kind of had these dual um, realities where one of them was that I would like kind of be weird in my own way where I would climb trees in the summer and write poetry in a little notebook and just sort of keep that to myself. And then the other part was wanting to be the responsible person in my family and grow up to have a steady job where I made steady money and nobody worried about me. And I feel like to this day, I still, those two parts of my personality collide all the time. Okay. So already there's so much there. So one thing that you said was you understood like the when you would see things as a child you like a tree for example you understood not what it was but what it could be what do you mean by that i remember having these daydreams as a kid where i would look at a tree and like just imagine what if the bark were like curtains and the curtains parted and I could walk into this tree like what would it be like in there and so I would always imagine these little alternate realities in in the world that I saw all around me and and to this day I create from those visions that I used to have and still have but kind of it, it goes beyond that not just what I can see in my imagination but um, but I'm very into symbolism and always have been from a really young age. I was very interested in literature and finding symbols within literature. And so from the time that I was, I would say probably like middle school age, I started to understand symbolism in terms of what we had to learn in school, but then also in terms of universal symbols um, that we could create with or just see in different ways. So one example of that is like I would look at a clock and understand that a clock is a symbol for time, that it's a physical representation of that. And so I started writing short stories when I was younger about things like clocks, but the symbolic version of a clock. And so I would look at everyday objects and see it for what it could be for the symbol of it rather than the thing itself. Did you share those stories with teachers or your parents or friends? I remember one time I did share a short story that I wrote in high school and it was maybe the only time that I really shared something like that um, up until that point and this story was super weird about it was about a girl who menstruates for the first time but her in her mind the idea of bleeding comes from these little blood cells that come to life in her brain and start coming out of her nose and her mouth and her ears and and she's sort of like drowning in blood and i i read this story to my class in high school and it was like crickets in the room like, <laughs> Like obviously looking back on it, of course nobody understood what I was talking about, but that was one of the first times that I shared my creativity openly. And I remember thinking, oh, this is why I've never done this. <laughs> well, I'm curious with this, like 
this sense of, oh, I'm supposed to be the normal one and do the normal thing in the world. And then you have this incredibly rich imagination. Did that, like, what did you think about your imagination in, in trying to fit it into this idea of I'm the normal one? At first, I, I just didn't know what to think. Like, I thought that maybe thinking like that was normal. Mm-hmm. And so I just didn't share it. And I didn't really think to talk about it with people. I certainly didn't share it with my friends. And even to this day, I have a really difficult time talking about my inner workings and my imagination with the people closest to me. And instead, I much prefer to share it with strangers and people who I don't care if they judge me, I guess. Um, Whereas when you share your sort of inner workings with people that you love, there's that fear of, well, what will they think of me if I share this? And so I kind of just kept it to myself and thought, well, this must be normal. If I'm thinking this, then everyone else must think this. And, um, and I guess that I did learn in high school at some point that it's not normal, but what I'm grateful for is that at the same time that I learned that it wasn't normal, I learned that not being normal is the best thing we can do. And so I never had to go through that period of, Um, frustration or doubt in myself of am I doing the right thing or should I share this type of thing one one thing you said was just now is you prefer to share it with strangers as opposed to friends and family who may have some different responses to it and I find that really fascinating because one of the things that holds so many creatives back is sharing their not just their work, but the way they see the world. There's so much fear about being judged and about being vulnerable in who we are with people that we don't know. But that's not at all, that doesn't come up for you at all. No, it doesn't. And, and the re I think that there are two reasons. One is that when, when I think about my position in the world and how other people see me, I am highly aware that I don't matter at all, but in the best way possible. Like if I look at, for example, I'm a self-portrait artist. And so I go out a lot and create self-portraits in public spaces and then crowds will gather, people will watch. And it's really easy in that moment to get in your head and think, oh my gosh, this is so embarrassing. Like, I wish that people wouldn't watch what I'm doing. This is private. This is personal. But then I just remember nothing matters. Like, I don't matter to these people really, truly in the end. And like, what's the worst that anyone's going to think about me? And does that affect me at all? And the answer is always no, it doesn't affect me at all. And it shouldn't. And I guess that some of that is sort of like, I don't know, a lot of years of building confidence up to think that way, but a lot of it is also just that that realization that we are so serious about so many things and about our position in the world and our legacy and how will people view us that that we we get so caught up in in letting ourselves be the center of the world that we don't recognize that everyone is the center of their own world and really nothing that we do matters that much to other people. How much do you think that it's connected, this idea, like you said, some of it is over time building confidence and and also just recognizing like, oh, each person is really the center of their own world. How much of this idea that I don't matter is linked to confidence? So much. Oh my gosh. I At least for me it is. And I don't at all mean that statement in the way of 
saying like our art doesn't matter, our voice doesn't matter. It's totally the opposite. I kind of, I love to think of this little visual of like lots of atoms bumping into each other as how we interact with each other in the world. And you know, no one atom is the center of the world, although we all think that we are, but we just kind of bump into each other in these weird ways. And sometimes maybe it's through, you know, like this one time I was in Amsterdam in the center square of Amsterdam and a crowd of about a hundred people gathered around to watch me do a self portrait. So maybe it's just in a funny way like that, where people get to go home and say, you know, the weirdest thing happened today. And then they get to tell that story. Or maybe it's much more personal and meaningful where I bump into somebody and I change their life forever based on something I said or created. So it's sort of this knowledge that, that our lives are not going to be affected by other people if we don't let them be, but we should still try to affect other people in positive ways. Our lives are not going to be affected by other people if we don't let them be, but we should still try to affect others. I love that. That's like, I just have to like hold that for a second because basically what you're saying is we choose the degree to which the story of other people becomes our story. Yes. And then, but where we, the most important place or one of the more important places to put our intention is not so much on these stories, but on the way that we can positively impact others. Exactly. I mean, if I can go through life and, and somehow positively change someone by something that I've done or said, great. But if I have to carry the burden of what other people say and do, I mean, I'll never get any work out there. I'll never be able to positively impact anyone because I'll just be buried under all of these stories and actions that other people are putting out there. So it's just about picking and choosing and giving and taking. So how do you do that though? Like how are you able, if somebody says, my gosh, what is up with your photographs? Like, it's so weird. Like if someone has like, and that's probably mild compared to what people could say, I'm sure, yeah. but, um, how do you go, oh, whatever, that's like somebody else's story and I don't need to hold on to that? Well, I guess that for me, the, the ability to push away negativity comes from just inherently knowing my worth, inherently knowing that what I have to say is important, but also that it won't be important for everybody and that's okay. And, and then there's also this other, like this is a great example that I have in my back pocket that somebody gave me, which is that one time I created an image and I got an email from this man who just basically said, I hate this picture. I hate that you created this. Like, and it was, it was a, a mean email, I guess you could say, um, in some ways. And I didn't think much of it. And then three years later, I actually met this man in person and he came to a class of mine to apologize for writing that email and explained that at that time in his life, he just wasn't ready to look at what I was creating, but things had changed for him. And he felt so open to that art that he once hated and that that was a really transformational experience for him. And so I always think back to that moment of, realization that we don't know where somebody is in their journey and their journey might be totally opposite to mine right now or just simply not prepared 
to take in the art that I'm creating. And if we remember that, that it doesn't necessarily have to do with if your art is good or bad or if what you say is valuable or not, it simply has to do with the moment in someone else's life that they're taking that into their own life. That is just the, the best thing to bring you back to reality and say, you know what, if somebody has negativity right now, that's okay. It's just a moment in time. That's such a great example. I mean, it's not often that we get those kind of examples, especially no. when showing up at your workshop three totally. hours later. And it really speaks to how it's so often more about the person who is critiquing it than it is about what's being critiqued. I'm cu- curious about this idea of, like you said, I so know, like you really get the inherent value of your worth. You, you're really connected to that. How, how much do you think that is tied in with knowing your why? Entirely, entirely. I, I think that the more that we settle into understanding why we create or why we exist or, or why whatever it is that you're interested in, then we start to see the value in ourselves. I mean, it happens naturally. It's, it's this idea that if you don't know why you're here, then you're aimless and you don't know where to go forward and you don't know exactly how you're supposed to impact other people. But the moment you connect with a reason why you're here, every single decision that you make and thing that you do and piece of art that you create harkens back to that why. And when we have that why, everything that we do has more meaning. And, and that just builds and builds in your self-confidence. So what if, like, I actually had a conversation with a woman a couple days ago where she shared that one of her biggest challenges, and it's been one of her biggest challenges for a while, is not knowing her why. And she's been living with this for years and years. And someone goes through a large, you know, a long time in their life without having this idea of why. Are there ways that you help people tap into their why or like what did you do on your own personal journey to get clear about your why well I think uh, let me answer this in four parts (laughs) um if I can yeah sure Um, and or maybe only three will suffice but um the first step I think and and this is these are the steps that I try my best to go through in terms of finding my legacy, which is finding our why, which is finding our message, and it's all connected. And the first thing that I do is to truly focus on honesty, on how honest we're being with ourselves and how much time we're giving ourselves to be honest. And when I say time, you know, in the example that you use, someone might spend years and years and years trying to find their why. But I wonder how much time we're spending alone with ourselves in this deep place in our minds, just silently thinking about this. And I wonder because I come across a lot of photographers, for example, creative people who say either I'm not creative or I'm not good at thinking of ideas or I never know what to create. I always have writer's block. And I wonder how much time we're spending because I come against this too, where I'll sit down with a blank piece of paper and I'll spend maybe five solid minutes just staring at the paper thinking, what am I going to create? And after five minutes, if nothing comes up, it 
feels like a long time. And then I say, oh, I'm not creative today. I can't think of anything. And, you know, maybe we give ourselves 10 minutes or 15 minutes, but rarely longer than that, just sitting with a blank piece of paper. And so I like to challenge people to just sit longer with your your scariest self, which is that blank piece of paper, the, the part of yourself that doesn't know how. And if you keep confronting that person, that deepest part of yourself, eventually you start to put things down on that paper, no matter how long it takes. And those things that you put down on that paper of who you are, why you are, what you want to create, those all have a deeper level to them than what we see initially. A great way of, of confronting this is to get out a blank piece of paper and ask yourself, why am I here? And to write down just any anything that comes to mind, but then ask yourself that question a second time and a third time and a 10th time and a 20th time and see how many more layers you can pull out of the answer to that question. And being honest with yourself is, is how we begin to do that. But unfortunately, we learn to mistrust ourselves. We learn to trust other people more. We learn that lying about who we are gets us further socioeconomically. And so we stop being honest with ourselves. So when we can find first that honest place, that's where we begin. And then we move on to trusting ourselves. And then there's this whole element of grief that comes into finding our legacy, which is learning to let go of who you were or who you thought you were going to become to answer the honest question of who you need to be. And so I think this is a really multi-layered answer, and, and we could talk about this for days, is about how we find our legacy. But for me, it's about going back to first, what I love to do, second, why I love to do it. And then third, what's the deeper meaning behind that? So an example is that I love photography and I could just stop there and say, I'm a photographer, that's my legacy. But if I really think about photography and what I love to do with it, it's not the camera that I love or the picture taking process or editing or any of that. It's storytelling. And so if I'm honest with myself, I know that at my heart, I'm a storyteller. But being a storyteller is a job title. It's a thing that you can do. It's not a legacy or a why. And so when I think about the deeper reason why I love telling stories, it's to inspire other people to tell stories, to inspire creativity in others. And so that deeper reason is my legacy. It's to inspire creativity in others where maybe they weren't inspired before. So that's a super long answer, and I'm so sorry. No, it's amazing, though. Like, everything that you're sharing, I have, like, 15 questions that come up in my head. So I'm going to skip around a little bit here. So I'll start kind of backwards. The, the last thing you said about um, when, you know, why you do it and that it's about inspiring creativity in others. When you're creating a photo, when you're making a photograph, are you thinking about, I want this to inspire creativity in others? Yes. And I think that this is, what makes me a little bit weird compared to a lot of artists is that something that a lot of people say as artists is that we should create for ourselves first and foremost, and sometimes exclusively. And that's something that I have always in some ways taken issue with this idea that we need to create only for ourselves to be considered a real artist, quote unquote. 
And I've always taken issue with that because so much of what I do is to inspire other people. So when I'm creating something, I very often go into it, yes, first with this mindset of this is what I want to create because I feel the need to say this. But then the second thing that I say right after that to myself is, but how will this affect people? Whether it's good or bad or happy or controversial, that's not really what I'm so much interested in as I am interested in just thinking about consciously, how is what I do going to affect other people? And I've learned over the years that even if it's commercial or even if it makes people sad or uncomfortable, that alone is enough to inspire creativity in others. So part of what people get hung up on with figuring out legacy is, you know, is this good enough or big enough or happy enough? And it doesn't have to be any of those things. It can be something small and quiet and not even happy or joyful or anything like that to inspire other people. Well, one, this idea of how will this affect other people, I think one of the things that people say, that artists will say in response to that is, well, if I'm thinking about that, then I stop creating something that's true to me because now I'm caught up in what is going to be the reaction of the person on the other end of what I create. Right. How does that, that not get in the way for you of creating something that's authentic to you? Well, because for me, the the reaction is not the point in, in a lot of ways. So if, you know, I've had a lot of emails from people who are just angry about my art, who don't want me to create things, who think it's just horrible. And, and that reaction is just as valid as somebody who loves it, as somebody who doesn't care really. And, and all these reactions are valid because the point of my creating and, and inspiring others is not to create a happy reaction. And I think that if we're creating art for the praise or for that type of reaction, then that's not the right reason. But there's something deeper than that, which is simply affecting somebody with our art. And that's how I go into it is from the mindset of, I'm going to create something, it's going to be 100% me, and whoever needs to be affected by that in this moment, whenever they see it, that's who it's going to affect, and that's good enough for me. That's so inspiring, I love that. Um, what, okay, so another thing that you said earlier in response to this question of how do you find your why, is you said you go into that place where you can be really honest with yourself. Yeah. and how did you find that for yourself? Like, what is, what did you learn as you went into that place that showed you what it meant for you to be honest? I actually went into that space through a very strange journey and path where I, about 10 years ago, started photography and did not want to be a photographer. Like actively said, I don't like photography. I don't understand even what photographers do. I'm not really interested in this genre. And at the time I was just graduating from film school. So I thought I was going to be a director or cinematographer or a writer. And I just didn't love photography. So when people started calling me a photographer and then I started calling myself a photographer, it felt really weird. And, and I was hyper aware of this idea that a photographer is a label and that I am more than that, that I have ideas that are beyond a medium like photography or film or writing or whatever it may be. 
And so I started very early on thinking about myself not as a label, but as the reason behind that label. Like, why am I using photography to create my ideas? Why am I using film? Why am I using uh, a pen and paper? And so very early on, I started to realize that that I am not just a photographer or just a writer. I am the reason why I do these things. And something else kind of interesting happened that really clicked into place for me at that time, which is from a business perspective, actually, which was to say, there are so many great people in the world who have done amazing things, who we know, you know, just by their first name because of how uh, how much they've impacted the, the work that they do. And all of those people have something in common, which is that they are not just one thing. We don't know them just because they're an artist or just because they're you know a personality or whatever. We know them because they are completely attuned to their legacy and that's their brand and their business. And so I started from quite early on in my in my career to say I am not a photographer, I am not a writer, I am the reason why I do those things. And so my marketing strategy, my branding, my business is built around my legacy and not around my art. Mm. Okay. And I do remember in an interview you said that you felt one of the main differences between amateur and professional, whether it's a photographer or maybe you were talking about photography, but I'm assuming it applies to just about anything is knowing the why behind yeah. the work. Yeah, I do think so. I mean, I, I see so many, I mentor a lot of people. I teach a lot of workshops and, and the number one thing that stops people from understanding how to move forward in their professional life is just not being connected enough to why they're doing it in the first place. And that's why people burn out from their jobs. That's why people feel lost within their jobs because you're not connected to the reason why you're doing it at all. Yeah. And I also see how it's, it acts as this shield almost like this protection, because just as you're saying, if you know that your legacy is to inspire others to be creative and it's not about you, Brooke, the photographer, it's about this, whole big thing, this big idea, this concept of inspiring others, then when somebody, like just like you said, when you get an angry email or someone says, please like stop making the art, I hate the art that you make, it's like, great, this is part of my legacy. I am inspiring something. In some exactly. And that, you know, of course that takes time to learn because like anyone, I started getting hateful emails and was really upset by it and would sort of fuel that by responding and fighting and, you know, just getting really riled up about it until I thought, what's the point of being an artist? And is the point to make everybody happy or is the point to make people feel something? And in the end, I, I had to answer that it was to make people feel something. So now when somebody hates what I do, I just think, oh, thank goodness I've done something right, that I haven't just made everybody happy. So what parts of yourself did you have to let go of? Like you said, there's that natural grieving process when we are honest with ourselves and then we go through this grief process of letting go of who we either thought we were or what we thought we were going to do. What did you have to let go of in order to step into this legacy that you're now carrying out? The biggest thing I think for me was letting go of the narrative that I told myself that I am incompetent. 
And this was a really big one for me because all throughout school, I got very bad grades. I tried harder than anybody that I knew. I studied and studied and studied. I was very diligent and I still failed classes, had a really low GPA, had a hard time getting into college. And, and it took a long time for me to shed that identity as someone who is not smart, as someone who's not competent, as someone who doesn't know what she's doing. And of course that comes with time and, and learning, but it also comes with just a really kind of like far too simple flip of a switch in your mind, which is to say, I have complete control over the way that I see myself and therefore the way other people see me. And it, I had to learn really um, sort of over a long period of time because I didn't flip that switch fast enough um, that nobody saw me as incompetent. I saw myself that way. And it was only through my repetition of, of telling people that story that I'm stupid, that I don't know what I'm doing, that other people could possibly adopt that view of me. So that was the biggest part of myself that I had to leave behind. And it's funny to, to use the word grieve in this case. Like, why would you grieve leaving behind somebody who didn't serve you? But that was my identity. That was what I held on to as a security, as a shield to make myself feel better about not being good at some things. And that's a hard thing to leave behind. So when you left it behind, what happened with your photography? I think more than my photography, it's what happened with my business and my, my sort of outlook as a whole of what I was capable of, where I, I was really crippled at first by what I should be doing and the right way to do things in my business. So I would often have an idea and then say, well, how would somebody else do this? And I would just get so caught up in not knowing the first steps to take. And when I flipped that switch, I started to be able to say, screw other people. I don't care how other people did this. I'm going to do it my way. And by doing it that way, it will be so much better. I'm going to be a trailblazer. I'm going to be someone who discovers a path that nobody else has taken before. And I'll be known for that rather than following someone else's footsteps. And that was the most liberating thing for me in my journey. All of this makes total sense because I've had a lot of these personal experiences and like, yes, that's exactly right. The way you're describing it is right and it can take a long time like it can be this yeah. long process yeah and there are always things that we're still going to have to let go of i mean that that's the funny thing is that i think that we as just as human beings have this idea that the the journey to legacy or to being somebody great is just this forward momentum. And it's not. And I think that the best example of this um, is the hero's journey. And, and just what Joseph Campbell came up with about myth and mythology, this idea that we're on this constant circular path, and that we always have to uh, go on this journey to become a different person to come back to where we started to start all over again. So even though my journey has been about grieving, you know, my incompetence, the, the, the loss of that persona, now it's going to be something else. And so what is that for me now? And over the years, it's been many different things like, um, like trying to let go of this persona that I took with me of being fragile. I always thought that I was really fragile as a person. And, um, 
and now part of what I'm grieving is um, this idea that I need to take on the trauma of other people, which is something that I've had to deal with by creating art that's very open and honest with other people, is that I often have to take on the trauma of others by connecting through my art. And so now that's a part of my persona that I'm currently working on leaving behind is, is that part. So it's just a cycle. Yeah, that's a big one. That uh, I that's something that I work with too, and I haven't figured that one out. But it's a tough one. <laughs> um, okay, so I want to get into your photography because there's a couple places I really want to make sure we get into. One is your photography, and one is the light space. So starting with photography, one just on your website it says Brooke explores the darkness and light in people, and her work looks at that juxtaposition. How do you explore dark and light through the camera? For me, it's about either. I, this is how I, I frame the photographic aspect of it is I try to either find a space that is joyful or bright or in some way not dark because <laughs> it's not always joyful, I guess. And then I try to put a dark concept into that space so that literally it is physically beautiful but there's something dark happening within that or just the opposite where I'll bring maybe a hopeful concept um, into a space that's really dark and gloomy and so I try to always have elements where there's something clearly dark and something clearly um, hopeful or optimistic happening in the frame so that when a viewer looks at the image they can immediately grab onto those two things and then right after that have to work out how they're connected. And how, how do you hold that balance so that it doesn't go too far into light or too far into dark? Well, I think I don't, actually. I think that that's a constant struggle. And, and, but part of what I love about creating is that that's okay if it does go too far one direction or another direction. So many people are so concerned with consistency and branding and putting out something that always relates to one another and and much more now in my journey I'm concerned with putting something out that that represents where I'm at emotionally or physically right now in my life so um, a good example of this is I'm working on a series right now that's all about death and it's just like grotesque surreal graphic and I think that people will look at this series whenever it does come out and say, there's not a lot of that light that she talks about in these images and that's okay, you know, but people will still find something to connect to within that. So that's another thing about knowing that your why is to inspire people because one of the things that comes up a lot when I interview artists is this place of now I'm known for this and it's, scary for me to explore areas that I'm interested in but not known for how will people respond to it what will happen but you don't have to you don't necessarily have any of that if you keep coming back to the why well exactly and you know what I always think of when I when I think about this issue is that I started photography with no notion of what photography was or that I would ever have a career in this. I just started doing whatever I wanted and putting those images on Flickr and just sharing about my life. And then suddenly people started looking and watching and following and, and that happened without me strategizing or without me having any consistency. It just happened because I had something to say and somebody else needed to interact with that. And I try to remind myself 
myself of that when I'm moving into a new space in my creativity, which is that, yeah, some people won't like it, but there are so many other people out there that will find it and be so attracted to it. So why worry so much about if you're going to please other people when we're humans? So naturally, we will connect to other people. It just might not be the same people that have always been there. Okay, I have to I have to underline that because again, so you'll hear stories and people are like, oh, you know, I started doing my thing and then all of a sudden people started to notice and, and then I started making lots of money and it just was so organic and da da da. And then I speak to a lot of artists and creators who are not at that same level of success and they're like, I don't understand. I'm doing the same things and that and I'm not having that. Suddenly, all of a sudden, people are noticing my work. And the one thing that has not come up is this idea of what are you trying, like what in this moment is important for you to be sane more so than are are people finding it? Because I think that's a piece we miss. It absolutely is. And oh my gosh, like I, I feel like screaming about this because I just wish that like, this is the thing that I want people to internalize is this idea that if you are saying and doing what you need to do for yourself right now, and in some way you're sharing that honestly with people, then somebody else will be in that same space. Somebody else will be in that space. And I'm not saying it's going to be a huge commercial success or anything like that, but it doesn't matter because when you're saying what you need to say, somebody will be there to support that. It might be one person or it might be a million people. Who knows? Yeah. Okay. And that's very important. Uh, okay. So going back to the, to your process or with photography, one of the things that you had said in an interview, you said the heart of the photograph is finding the character, figuring out what makes them unique and special, and then turning that into a whole entire concept. What does that mean to figure that out and turn it into a concept. Like I wasn't even sure I understood that. Well, yeah. And for me, my process shifts between basically what you just said and the opposite. So sometimes I start with character. And when I start with character, I'm starting with this abstract idea of a person that could be someone. And when I do that, I try to think about the literal things that go into an image. For example, where would this person be? What would they be wearing? What would they be thinking? What would they be doing? And then after I sort of get this vision of who this person is, then the concept or the theme comes really easily because, well, obviously if this person is here doing this thing with this object in this costume, then this is the theme that they would be exploring at this moment. But more than that, I like to start with theme and then build from there. And that's how, um, that's kind of how I avoid, uh, what's the version of writer's block, but for visual artists, I don't even know the term for that, but whatever that is, um, that's how I avoid not knowing what to create because I, like, I have this list of themes in my back pocket that I pull out every day and I add to it and I take away from it, but I've always got a running list of themes, whether it's light versus dark or rebirth or um, decay or whatever it may be. And when you have a theme that you really connect to, that's like so a part of you that you could just explore it for the rest of your life, then you can always find different visuals to put with that theme. So when I come up with a theme like rebirth, that immediately sends all of these visuals through my mind. Like what, what, 
objects represent rebirth? What locations represent rebirth? And then my images grow from there. And that's typically how then I get to character is to say, well, what type of character would interact with the theme of rebirth? And what would that character make it look like and feel like and, and, and what comes next? So that's typically how I start. And that's essentially a way for you to basically work with the, like work through things, like through ideas is you take this thing of rebirth and then in the character and then does that, by the time the photograph is done, is it that you have now learned something more on the concept of rebirth or is it just, here's another way of, ex of expressing it? Like, well, I, okay, so let me answer this question in kind of a weird way because a hallmark of who I am, like who I, who, who I believe I am, is that I'm a very analytical person when it comes to emotions and experiences. So I'm the type of person that will go through something and internalize that and understand it from every angle. And then only once I'm out of the other side of that experience do I create about that experience. So when I'm working with theme, I'm not so much working to explore something about the theme while I'm creating, it's more so that I've already done the exploration and now I need to put that out there physically into the world. Okay. So what about this aspect of not being confused enough and being confused? Like what, how does that play into it? Well, see, I think that that comes back to our, our personal explorations. Like everybody seems to want everything to be easy. And I don't say that in a, in a, in a way that like makes people feel bad. I hope because I do too. Like we want to, we want to just understand everything right away. Um, we want to experience things and, and have that feel clear and, and like we know what we're doing. But for me, the art process, like the process of creating an art piece does not start when I pick up my camera or even when I come up with the idea on paper. It starts when I'm in the middle of an experience and I'm letting myself feel the weight of that experience. And so an example of this is a couple of years ago, I had to go through um, sort of a grieving process um, during a, a time of loss. And during this time, I was confused. I was angry. I was upset. And I just let myself feel that for about two years. Like I just let myself be in that state of confusion. And only when I came out the other side of it, could I start creating from it. And that's what sort of birthed this death series that I'm working on now. But it was only by starting the artistic process in the middle of that experience, could I then create something from it later? So for me, that, that confusion that I think we try to avoid and we try to understand forcibly, that's what informs our art or what should inform our experiences. So you know when you're in the midst of some place where it's a challenging place, like you're in the middle of grief, there's a part of you that is like, okay, I'm paying attention to this because some art is gonna come out of this. Yes, massively. I'm, it's a, it's a curse. <laughs> um, but I'm hyper aware of my emotional state and my circumstances. And I'm constantly analyzing as I'm living. And so this is sort of something that, you know, can detract from the experience in some ways, but also add to it because I tend to come out of experiences faster than a lot of other people. Um, I tend to come out of grief or even joy and things like that faster because I understand it as it's happening rather than having to process it later. Okay. I want to break this down a little bit. So using this example, you're in the middle of it and you're 
watching, is it that you're watching yourself experience it and go, huh, this is interesting. Like this is what's happening to me now, or this is yes. what I'm doing. Yes. You got it. <laughs> wow. So Very you're much able so. to keep them, you're able, that's so fascinating. Like you're able to drop deeply into the experience of it while at the same time, analyzing, observing, keeping a very objective per, like uh, perspective of it. Yeah, I think I think that that's like my my superpower um, at the end of the day is is being able to be in it and you know outside of it at the same time, and but there, I think that there are certain things that the parts of my personality that lend themselves to that very naturally. And um, one weird example of this is um, I don't know if it's obvious or not for my work, but I'm really interested in death and grief. And that's something that I love to explore. So when I'm in the middle of it, I like, I hate it and I love it at the same time. Like I'm hyper aware of the fact that these experiences though heightened in a negative way are also the experiences that will create the best art that will create the best stories at the end of our lives. And so something that I do as a practice, which is super weird is that I um, eulogize people all the time. So like if I'm alone in a car and I'm just driving somewhere constantly in my mind, I'm thinking about the imminent deaths of my family or friends and just going through like this long monologue of a eulogy for them. And that's just a weird example of how I like to think about bad things happening to bring myself closer to that experience so that I can understand it better when it happens. Wow. Okay. I want to go back though to this particular, like if you're, not not where you're imagining something bad happening, but where you're actually in it and you're observing it and you're both experiencing it and being able to analyze it, take it apart. And then as you start to come out of it, you now have like, what is it that you're playing with when you go to create a photograph? Is it, oh, I know that when I was in the middle of that experience, these are the feelings I felt and now I want to convey them. Like what what is carried over from the experience into the image that you that has to be one of the most interesting questions i've ever been asked and i i feel like you've just set me on a totally new path of exploration in my own creativity because i don't know that i've ever thought about like what that tangible thing is before if i had to guess at what it is um which i really hate that i don't know you've done this to me but <laughs> But the thing that I think that yeah, I see confused, right? I mean, that's yeah, and it's wonderful and it's horrible at the same time. Um, so the thing that I take is not so much the feeling like I'm not, I don't often work based in emotion. So like, even though I can remember how I felt during a specific time, that's not what inspires me to create later. It's more so the universal experience of it. Like how can I visually represent not only the feeling, but also my mindset and the impact that it had on others and the way that I behaved, sort of taking every element of the experience and then putting that into one single visual for people to understand. So even though certainly emotion is part of it, that's not the driving force. The driving force is wanting other people to understand the whole situation in one image. Okay, so then after it's like, all right, if I pull this in, then that will help. Like that is mm -hmm. symbolic of this, and this is an image that could help convey that. And if I bring them all together, is it exactly. piecing it together? Yeah, so it, it, always, it always goes back to 
um, symbolism for me yeah. always, like whether it's color or a, a prop or an object or a location or anything. Like my brain is always in symbolism mode and particularly universal symbolism mode. So like, what would this mean to different cultures across the world and how can I connect to the most people possible? But I get the impression that even though you're looking at, okay, what does a symbol mean to people all over the world, that at the same time, when the image is done, it sounds to me like you would be like, I don't, it's not important to me that someone interpret it the way that I created it, but just that they have an experience of it. Exactly. And, and it's funny because I often create images that people see in a totally different way. And I haven't even thought about that. But through experience, I've learned that if something, if, if an object or a color can represent something to me, then it can represent something to someone else. And the way that I try to combat the fact that so many things can mean so many different things is by keeping my images kind of radically simple. Like the, I, I don't have very many images that look complicated. There's never like more than one prop in an image or typically not even more than one person in an image. It's very, very simple in terms of the composition. And I think that helps a lot because there are no conflicting symbols often in the work. There aren't like multiple props that could mean many different things to different people. And that's how I try to streamline the story so that Yes, people can see different things, but there's still one story for them and one story for somebody else and one story for me. Do you find the process of simplifying to be challenging? I don't actually. And I think that part of why I don't find it challenging is because I started my photography with nothing, like no locations, no models. And so I just used a blank white wall. And I had to learn how to build from there, like how to shoot something in my tiny little apartment and then make it look interesting somehow. And I did that very much in the beginning through the use of skin, through the use of morphing bodies and, and not really having access to anything else but my body and a wall. And so my background in photography is building something from nothing rather than going into really interesting spaces and having to pare that down into something more simplified. So for me, it's really simple, but I know for others, it's definitely not. Right, right. Because we want to put in a lot more context. We feel like we need to explain, 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 yeah. or fill, fill, fill. And yet that often is exactly what you're saying. That can get in the way and make the message a lot muddier. Because yeah, just, it does. Oh, this was fascinating to me. You said, I see the world very specifically. I always have. My writing matches my films, and that matches my photography. I've always felt the world would be more interesting if it had a certain color tone, if locations were preserved, if wardrobe were more timeless. I create in the way that I want to see the world, and that keeps my style pretty consistent. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, do you want to say something before I ask anything, just in response to that? Or no, go ahead. Go ahead. So when I read that, I was like, okay, first of all, that's just interesting. Like wanting to have the world be a certain color tone, locations preserved. I wasn't even sure that I understood. Like it's, it sounds like a certain timelessness. Yes. Yeah. So say more of what that world looks like to you. 
Well, you know, I started to become aware of what that world looked like when I started to write a lot of short stories when I was in high school. And I would describe the world in terms of colors very naturally. Like everything was always dusk or dawn, very blue or very like apocalyptic yellow. And and so I noticed that there was a certain, at, at the very minimum, a certain color palette running through the world that I imagined. And that has never changed. So even in all of my images, like if you look through them, they're all either like this yellowish red hue or this really like blue cyan sort of hue. And that's because I, I love when light tells a story and light tells a story when it adopts a color to me. So if I can imagine the world like before the sun has come up when everything is just barely blue, that means so much to me because that's the quiet time when anything could happen when the world hasn't started yet so i'm just enamored with that time of day and i always have been and that was my first clue that i have a style like that i have a visual style that's going to come out in most of the things that i do and then i started making films and when i was in college i made films that like i was so frustrated in college because I wasn't very good at editing my films and I didn't understand how to get certain color temperatures. And so I would always make these films and just feel so frustrated that they didn't look blue or yellow or, or have these colors that I always imagined my films having. And that's kind of why I went into photography because suddenly I learned Photoshop and I could make them whatever color I wanted without any regard for reality or what things were supposed to look like. And so my visual style comes from first and foremost, that color, that color palette. And then secondly, I just don't like modern things. Like I'm not interested in um, photographing a modern building or I don't know, like really having any statement come out of my work about modern times. I want for things to be timeless because that is what I find most beautiful. Like it's as simple as that sometimes that I find timeless things beautiful. So that's what informs my art. And isn't it fascinating how, like you said, I, that when I realized that I was drawn to those colors and that time of day that I realized that was the beginning of me realizing that I have a style, like that somehow that's already inside of us. And it's just a question of uncovering it and discovering it. Yeah. And I think it is. And for some people, you just know, like if you really, if I were to ask you what, you know, what, what colors are your favorite or what time of day, maybe you have an answer or maybe you don't. And so you need to go out and explore everything to find the one thing that you connect with. But this is where I think people sort of fall off the wagon when you're trying to find your style. And it's when, when you ask yourself, okay, what do I like? What do I like? And then you know what you like, but then you can't answer why you like it. So for me, it's, it's not just enough to say, I love pre-dawn light. I love that blue light because yes, that's a fact. I do love it. And I understand that I love it, but I understand that I love it because it's the mysterious quiet time of the day before other people have woken up. And for me, that's the important thing is that it's not just, not just the thing that I love, but why I love it as well. And if you can inform your style based on why you're drawn to those things, then you'll never lose that style. Oh my gosh, this is like, this makes so much sense. Like, Oh, good. <laughs> Because I think about it in terms of, I've been thinking a lot about our house and um, what doesn't feel right to me in it and how I want to change it. And 
but I haven't given as much thought to why. And I feel like, oh, if I think about the why, it's so much simpler because then it's not so much about, well, but is it this paint color or is it that color? It's, well, what do I want? Why? Yeah. Um, yeah. Ah, that's, that's so great. Okay. I have one last question about the photography before we go to uh, the light space. So one thing you say is that your process is more discovery than creation. And I wanted to understand from you how you think they're different. To me, at least coming from an educator's background where I've done a lot of educating, people will often say, teach me how to create. And I can do that because I can tell you what buttons to push that will allow you to create something. But the process of discovery is a personal process. It's not so much pushing buttons or setting up props and things like that. It's about understanding why in the first place you feel drawn to make something at all and then figuring out what that thing is and why and then figuring out how to turn that into something tangible, which is the creation. So to me, the process of being an artist is about discovering who you are at all times, constantly, continually going on that journey, that cycle of asking who am I, why am I this person and how can I put that into the world physically right now? And so that's the creation. So to me, it's, it's, it's just two parts of what eventually gets labeled as art. Right. So it just keeps coming back to the same thing, same back to the why, back to the why. And it makes sense that this is why that we struggle with this so much because we move really quickly through life and our, the culture around us is super, super fast. So to ask the question why means that you are consciously slowing things down, slowing your life down, slowing yourself down long enough to ask and then listen for the answer. And it's for, yeah. So I can see why that doesn't, why we miss that so much, but okay. So now I want to move into the light space. First of all, in your words, what is the light space? And thank you so much for asking me. It just, it means so much to me that you would ask and want to talk about it. Um, The Light Space is a practical photography training program, and it serves underprivileged communities. So far, we've served um, women who have been subjected to sex trafficking as well as refugees. And um, so the Light Space started, uh, I guess, five years ago, maybe six years ago now, um, when I was going to India once a year, and I was teaching self-expression workshops um, to survivors of human trafficking. And every year I would go for a couple of weeks and then just feel this empty feeling of like, is that enough? Is it enough to just go in for a couple of weeks and do my thing and then walk away and maybe never see these people again? And what's the point of that if they don't have a continued outlet? So I was expressing my concern about this to a friend and, and he said, well, why don't you just make a school? And so I thought, well, I don't know, why not? So we did and um, that turned into the light space which has a location in India, Thailand and Greece now. And, um, and the goal is to, of course, allow photography and art to be a healing mechanism 
part of what I do with the work that I do in those places is to use photography as a nonverbal communication tool so that people who have been traumatized are not asked to retell their trauma and thus re-traumatize them. So the idea is to use it as a, a way of self-expression, but then also a way of um, gaining practical life skills and possibly even making money from a career in photography uh, down the line. I, that is so brilliant, the piece about using photography so that someone doesn't have to keep retelling their story and be re-traumatized by it. That's something I've wondered about a lot in the healing of trauma, how ways that we can move through it where we're not telling our story over and over again. And it's so important. Like it's something that I've seen a lot, particularly in India. Um, I work in a, in Calcutta in India where there's a very large, uh, trafficking issue there. And you, there are a lot of NGOs, a lot of nonprofits set up there um, to help, and a lot of them are incredible. But what you'll find is a lot of people who essentially we call parachuters who come in and don't really know the situation. So they're coming in to get interviews, and the intention is good. The intention is to, you know, like spread the word about what's happening. But what ends up happening is that they interview um, you know, girls who have been trafficked and it's just a one-time quick thing where they say, tell me your story. And then they have to continuously retell the story so that the word gets out, but it in turn traumatizes them again. And so the, the thing that I was sort of rebelling against with creating the light space is being a parachuter is someone who comes in once a year, does my thing, walks right out of there and thinks that I'm really making a difference when in fact it takes much more long-term infrastructure a lot of times to create that impact and then also to give the space to not just take a story and, and exploit that story. Yeah, and you said like when you were, when you had the idea for it or you thought, okay, I don't wanna, in this case, I don't wanna be a parachuter, but even before that, I don't wanna, you, kept, you had this hollow feeling of I'm just going yeah. in and then I leave. And someone said, well, your friend said, why don't you start a school? And it's like, oh, yeah. But there's so much more than that. I mean, it's like, why don't you start a school? And there's everything that comes after that. Yes. How, how long a process was that? Like, what did it you It took um, about a year. Okay. to get started. And it would have taken longer if I didn't have an incredible partner in this project. Her name is Laura Price. And she runs an organization called Blossomy, Blossomy Project. And her nonprofit brings creative workshops to um, underprivileged communities. And that's how I got started with the work that I was doing, because she is based in uh, Calcutta for a few months out of the year, and she facilitates these workshops. So she already had the connections that we needed to find infrastructure for a photography pro training program. So because of her, we were able to partner with organizations that she already had relationships with, who already had spaces where we could host the classes. Um, and so that was really helpful in the beginning to get everything off the ground. And that took about a year. And things have become more streamlined since then. For example, at the time, um, I was taking camera donations just to give as many cameras as I could. And as a result, all the cameras were really old and they were all different types. And it was really difficult to get through a class, you know, because every student had a different camera. So now we have support from Sony and they give cameras each year to the light space, which is 
massively beneficial. And we have really good relationships now with the organizations that we partner with. So for example, in Greece, um, in on the island of Lesbos, we work with refugees from many different communities, um, Afghanistan, Syria, parts of Africa, all over the place. And because we partner with an organization called Better Days there, um, we have access to an actual school that they founded there. So we have a classroom designated to the light space. We have an instructor that works through um, their school there. And we just have really good infrastructure. And I think that a lot of people come at nonprofits with this idea of like, I'm just going to do it, you know, and that's kind of how I made it sound at first is like, oh, I'll just start a school. But it takes so much finesse in terms of getting the money to do it, making sure you have the right partnerships, making sure that you're actually serving the community in the way that they need to be served and so much more. So what kind of things have you seen since it's been growing in terms of ways that you have been serving them? What kind of stories? Oh my gosh, I just got back from the best trip. I was in April, I was in Greece, and I um, attended the final exhibition for the graduating class. There were 15 of them. And what I saw was incredible because I had been there one year prior, like exactly one year. And I taught my self-expression workshops and we launched the light space. And in my workshops, I had uh, one girl in the class who barely spoke any English. She was super, super shy, like wouldn't look anyone in the eye, but she was really interested in photography. And so she joined the light space. And over the course of the year, she, um, learned English fluently that year, she decided that she's going to be an activist and a journalist, um, as well as a fine art photographer. And she started creating, um, essentially photo campaigns talking about the violence and gender violence in her country. She started to um, make a plan for the future. She's uh, moving soon out of Greece, uh, which is great for her and settling. And she said that when she gets to her new um, town, she's going to start to educate other people about how they can use their voices through photography to um, inspire and impact the world. So it's just incredible to see like just through giving somebody a camera and the right instruction and, and just permission, which is what we're all looking for is permission to say something important and to know that your voice matters that can change the whole trajectory of your life. And how has it changed you working with the light space? So many ways. Oh my gosh. It's for me, the greatest joy of the light space has been it, it going back to this idea of permission just learning that I have permission to try to help in as many ways as I can as well. Like when I started it, I didn't have any idea if it would work or if anybody would care or anything at all. But seeing the students flourish through this program and learn these life skills that are so important, it gives me the the confidence to say, you know what, I can make a difference too. And so why not try harder and start more projects and let them fail if they need to fail, but at least I'm trying and you never know when that's going to impact somebody. That's great. Okay. Is there any, before I go into the last part of the interview, is there anything that I haven't brought up that you really want to speak to? No, you covered it. You're awesome. <laughs> Thanks Brooke. Okay. So the last part is there's three pieces one is telling folks where they can find you so the best place to find brooke is at her website which is brooke b-r-o-o-k-e 
Shaden, S-H-A-D-E-N.com. It's also in the notes. Brookshaden.com. And then for the light space, where, where's the best place for that? It's thelightspace.org. Okay. Thelightspace.org. And so between, you can find out about the light space, obviously there. And then if you want to see any of Brooke's photographs or see what she's up to, the workshops, events, anything like that, it's all at brookshaden.com. It's a great place to go and just learn anything you want about Brooke. (laughs) And then the next piece is a gratitude piece. I have got so much from this conversation. I, I love these kinds of conversations and I am so I'm so grateful for the time that you take in your life to slow things down and to think and to reflect and to pay attention because it matters so much in the lives of other people. When you take that time and then you share the wisdom that you glean from that, from that paying attention, it's like, I feel like I just took a mini course in art, in business, in like, and everything because of what you've shared in this conversation with me. And that's all because of you paying such close attention to life. So oh, thank you so much. You're so kind to say that. And like this, this kind of conversation is so helpful for me in reinforcing what I want to do with my time and, and the, the types of words that we need to speak to inspire others and to keep ourselves inspired. So I'm so grateful for you. Ah, thank you. So the last thing is the last question, which um, for a while was the same one and now I've been changing it up. So I never really know what I'm going to ask, but I think with you, I would say based on what you just said, what what do you feel is really important to be putting out into the world at this point with the, um, yeah, what do you want to be saying? For me, I want people to stop being afraid of themselves. And I think that the way that we do that is to show more and more of who we are authentically and truly, whether that's messy or joyful or just, disturbing or disgusting or whatever. And I think that the more honest we are, then the more we inspire others to do that searching. And that's what I think is missing. And that's what I really hope to put out into the world. And that's what I get most excited when I see other people doing. That's great. Thank you so much, Brooke. Oh, I loved it. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. I'm Daphne Cohn, and you've been listening to the Creativity Habit Podcast. For more conversations with brave and experimental artists, and to learn more about the collective, head on over to thecreativityhabit.com. You can follow the Creativity Habit on Instagram, and you can support the podcast and the artists on it by going to iTunes and subscribing, rating, and reviewing this podcast. Now to review, you actually have to get on your computer and subscribe to the podcast, But the more reviews, the more folks know about all these incredible artists and makers doing such beautiful work in the world. So thank you for taking a couple minutes of your time to share your thoughts over at iTunes. And thank you for listening.